This is Dr. Marnie Peterson, and welcome to the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project, which was created by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. A component of this project are podcasts with global experts, such as our speaker today, in the field of antimicrobial stewardship and antibiotic resistance. So today, we have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Brad Spellberg. Remember, we will be discussing his efforts as he leads leading new approaches, specifically the development of a new psychological tool to promote effective antimicrobial stewardship. We will be discussing uh, specifically a published paper that was recently published in Open Forum Infectious Diseases. But before we begin, a little background on Dr. Spellberging. For any of you that may not be aware of all his accomplishments, he's the Chief Medical Officer at the Los Angeles County University of Southern California Medical Center. And he is also an Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs at the Keck School of Medicine in, at the University of Southern California. His impact on the field of infectious disease is vast, extensive. As a clinician, an antimicrobial steward, and a researcher in the development of new antimicrobials. He's also a proliferative author of numerous articles and books and has really worked extensively with policymakers and Infectious Disease Society of America to bring attention to the problems of increasing drug resistance and how we might approach this problem through our practice. His research regarding new drug development was a cornerstone of the Idea Stays White Paper, Bad Bugs, No Drugs, and has been cited extensively. He first authored numerous articles relating to public policy of antibiotic resistance and antibiotic development. And he's also the author of Rising Plague, which he wrote to inform and educate the public about the crisis of antibiotic-resistant infections and the lack of antibiotic development. Dr. Spellberg, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So we're going to get right to it and start uh, discussing this recently published paper which was titled Expected Practice as a Novel Antibiotic Intervention. And I mentioned in your introduction that we specifically would be discussing the development of a new psychological tool, which is uh, expected practice. So I would like to just charge right in and talk a little bit about this and how expected practice is unique and different from traditional practice guidelines. Yeah, um, so the the concept of an expected practice was published in JAMA a couple of years ago by um, a couple of people working with the chief medical officer of the L.A. County Safety Net System, so my boss. Um, <clears throat> the, they described the desire to institute care standards that are stronger than a guideline. Guidelines are sort of loose you know, please do it this way. This is how we, this is how experts kind of think this should be done. Um, and it sort of, it sort of points the general direction for a provider. In contrast, an expected practice is a tool that really, you know, expects, hence the name, to standardize care. And the outcome is if you're not going to follow the expected practice, you need to document in the medical record why. It's recognized that there are always unusual patient presentations and needs, and, and not one, no single expected practice can, can predict all circumstances. But it is expected to be so standard that if you don't follow it, you're supposed to justify why in the medical record. To get to that place, 
where you can set something strong enough to set that standard, it doesn't just get crafted by a couple of experts in a room. It goes through multiple rounds of specialty care and primary care working groups. You get groups of people together, including people who are not experts in the field, who are going to be affected by it. And it gets constructed, crafted. It then goes through um, approval by medical executive committee, pharmacy and therapeutics, any relevant leadership committee at the institution or in the system so that it assumes the gravitas and aura of authority of the medical staff and of the leadership of the healthcare system. It, it therefore, is much more um, instructive or directive than a general guideline is. Also, by doing this, do you um, feel that you can make it more of your organization, towards your organization or institutional um, perspective or from that environment versus a guideline that is, is, you know, more external coming in? That is a, an excellent point, yes. Um, people have um, – the term expected practice as described by Dr. Yi and his colleagues in the JAMA article um, contrasts with best practices. That's the term people tend to use. Oh, we have best practices. The problem with best practices is that sometimes they're just not feasible. Like I know that it would be the optimal, ideal thing to do for this patient, but in order to do that, we'll bankrupt the system if we have to spread it across to everyone. An expected practice, in contrast, is a local, this is in our system, this is what we think the standard should be for handling this problem for these kinds of patients. It's therefore, it's sort of akin to the difference between efficacy and effectiveness. An expected practice is an effectiveness tool. How do you spread it across the system in a way that's feasible and sustainable? And so they explicitly contrast the term expected practice with the best practice. You may think that it's the best thing for this one patient, but if I can't spread it to everyone, it's not useful locally, and that's why they went with the term expected practice. And you took – I want to get into why it's um... – defined as or characterized as a psychological tool as well. Uh, but before we do that, maybe putting it in context of, so you took it, this expected practice, which is a behavioral tool, and then you combined it with um, a, fo a focus area, uh, that being the, the short course antibiotic therapy. So I thought that was a, a very uh, innovative approach. And so it maybe talk a little bit about that combination and then, you know, why, why, is, why is the expected practice considered a behavioral tool? Yeah, so those are interrelated questions, actually, very good questions. Um, an expected practice concept is something that is to be applied to individual care areas. And so we actually, across our system, across four hospitals and dozens of clinics, have dozens of expected practices. The expected practice is intended to focus on a specific clinical question or scenario. Um, it, it's not – an expected practice is not dealing with antibiotic stewardship. We adapted the expected practice concept to tackle antibiotic stewardship just as many other clinical areas have been tackled in our system. Uh, and, and in the original JAMA article, they describe the processes by which that's done very well. 
Why is it a behavioral tool? One of the messages, well, all right, uh, let me take actually a step back, because this also goes to the JAMA article. Um, there are not infrequent concerns raised when a system wants to standardize the care element in a way that is maybe a little different than, than has been done in the past. You have problems of the education and information and awareness, but you also have problems of fear of doing something different. The, the, the concern is, well, you know, if I do this new thing and something bad happens to my patients, you're just going to hang me out to dry, right? Is the institution really going to back me if I do this? That is part and parcel to antibiotic stewardship. I mean, one of the more common things that I hear personally when I round on stewardship and that I hear other stewardship leads tell me when I go talk to people across the country is the message back from the primary team of, well, it's easy for you to say to de-escalate therapy or to stop therapy early or to not give antibiotics to this patient. You're not the one who's going to get sued if something goes wrong. You know, mm -hmm. I'm the one who's seeing this patient and their family every day. I'm the one writing notes in the medical record. If something goes wrong, it's on me. And the expected practice, as originally described and as adapted to stewardship, shifts that responsibility to the institution. This is the institution and, very importantly, the medical staff of the institution. It isn't just the CMO. In fact, it's the CMO secondarily. It is the legally required independent medical staff of the hospital that is telling its providers, we as physicians expect our physician colleagues to do this. So that if you do that and something goes wrong, the answer is, I am complying with the expectations of the expected practice and the expectations of the medical staff of this hospital. Mm -hmm. So it shifts the sense of responsibility from the individual to the institution and its medical staff, and it is a, uh, therefore a signatory that the institution is going to back its providers who comply with the expected practice. I think that also, um, well, I, I want to ask, I think that gets at the study design or the, or I should say more the implementation of, of the expected practices. You obviously then need to have buy-in all the way up through the institution um, and with with supportive literature, and, and I assume that that was the approach you needed to take such that they would take on that liability. Yeah, so, so that's exactly right. The, the expected practice is not, a, is not two separate things. It's not combining a literature search with an expectation. The literature is the core component of getting provider buy-in that this is the right thing to do. So what we, what we start with, and we actually published in the paper as a supplemental figure what the actual document looks like. And in our system, there's a very standard format. You have to follow this format. It starts with you, you tell what the problem is, and then you describe the literature. What, what is the evidence that what we're saying should be done as an expected practice is there? <clears throat> that evidence then goes to committees of primary care and specialty care experts who hash it out. And this is where it gets painful because, you know, 26 people want to do the same thing 26 different ways, and you got to come to consensus. And, and it may have to go to 
multiple committees. It has to, you know, for us, it had to go to the ID committee, had to go to the inpatient committee, had to go to the outpatient committee. Um, there were other groups that had to go to go to the pharmacy and therapeutics committee. Ultimately, when you get buy-in from all those groups, then it ends up at the medical executive committee for the official stamp of approval of medical staff, and it gets signed off on by hospital or the system leadership. If you don't have the literature basis for it, you're not going to make it through the system. So the expected practice does have a psychological component, but it is founded upon randomized controlled trials or evidence of similar, you know, um, solid foundations so that you can get everybody to agree, yes, generally speaking, this is how these patients should be cared for. And if you're going to deviate from it, you should explain in the medical record why this patient is different. So you focused on the short course antibiotic therapy you know, as the as the focus here, in it, which is also a component of antimicrobial stewardship. And written in the introduction of the paper was a statement around that, unfortunately, among some of the practitioners or, or medical staff, that there was still a, 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 their familiarity with short short course therapy was as a tool, a stewardship tool, was limited. So you had that educational piece that that had to happen. That's exactly right. I mean, that is the, the expected practice is sort of an educational tool and a psychological tool in one. And it, they're not two separate things. They are one thing that achieves both aims. Um, for some things, expected practices don't need a lot of education around. The fact that you should use a beta blocker and a heart failure patient on discharge from the hospital, duh. Everybody knows that. It's just codified now. But when new things come along, when changes come along, the expected practice can also help you educate people. Um, and the sad thing is short course therapy isn't really new in literature, but, uh, you know, the problem that we know in medicine is changes to actual medical practice on the ground tend to badly lag what the literature says. We've known about short course therapy for 25 years. Lou Rice is the guy who really called it to the fore 10 years ago in a keynote address at IDSA. And even now, just within the last six months, there was a publication looking at 58 countries and thousands of ID specialists, only one-third of them recommend short-course therapy. So we need to begin to, to go from the individual studies and actually inform people and put that information in the context of a tool that they can help change their own practice. That really is the goal here. To be supported that way, too, from their organization. Well, I, so you've talked a little bit about the implementation, how you um, – the, the first steps you took to before you could even do the study itself um, and, and, and put this – to implement this and compare it to um, prior to implementation. So – Maybe just talk a little bit, just, you know, for those that haven't read the article about, um, just a little bit about the study design and what were your, what were your primary outcomes, secondary outcome that you were measuring? Sure. So the study design was a quasi-experimental, was pre-post. Uh, we went live, we used a month burn-in. Um, the tool was promoted by me via memo, via email circulation, and via um, screensavers. 
But after that, after the initial rollout, the only reinforcement was from our stewardship team, which began using it when it would call people and say, hey, we're noticing the patient's still on cefepime, it's ventilator-associated pneumonia, you know, you're at day seven now, you don't really need it. They would then begin to incorporate it into their normal practice of calling providers and de-escalating and stuff. The design then was to look at um, I, we identified patients who received antibiotic courses around a core set of disease entities, um, so that because the the expected practice talks about specific diseases, and, and you had to be able to identify them by ICD-10s. Um, and so we did a search of the database looking for UTIs, skin and soft tissue infections, uh, and pneumonia, whether it was community acquired or ventilator associated. And we looked at 12 months pre and 12 months post. Primary outcome measures was a reduction in days of therapy um, or, or a change in days of therapy. And days of therapy was counted per individual antibiotic. So if somebody was on three different antibiotics for 10 days each, that was 30 days of therapy. We also then looked at the total milligrams or grams, so the mass of antibiotics exposed. Those were our primary primary outcome measures uh, with adjustment for uh, a large number of covariates. As a balancing measure, we looked at death. Uh, we wanted to make sure people were not harmed, and so we looked at was there any change in uh, in the death rate uh, of the patients. So in doing so, you, you reported out the results. And, um, yeah, I want you to describe a little bit about your reaction to your results, but they, they were very positive and that you, you had an effect um, in the right direction. So is it, was that expected? Was it more than you had expected, your, your effect that you see yeah. in reduction? Yeah, so we, we reached between 10 and 27% reductions in days of therapy across UTI, skin and soft tissue infections, pneumonia, and ventilator-associated pneumonia. When you looked at, at tonnage or milligrams or grams, they actually were larger. The declines ranged from 13% to 35%. Um, I was surprised at the magnitude of the difference, in part because this turns out to have been a fellow um, study. This was a fellow QI study. Mm-hmm. And the fellow who uh, – that's Erica Masuda, one of our co-authors. She was the second author on the paper – um, wanted to look at this, was a little concerned when we began to pull the data because in her discussions with people, people were not – a lot of people she spoke to, providers in the hospital, were like, well, I haven't heard of this expected practice. I haven't – is there an expected practice? Oh, I haven't seen. And so she was thinking people didn't know about it. How could it possibly work? Okay. <laughs> so then we pulled the data, and here we go. And the answer is it worked. Because they may not have remembered the email memo, and they may not have associated these screensavers that are popping up in their subconscious, Uh but they were constantly being reminded by the stewardship team, hey, you're at day seven. We need to stop, right? Uh And then if 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 the stewardship team got pushback, well, I don't think this is safe. I'm not really sure. I'm the one who's going to be in trouble. They would say, here's the expected practice. Here's the website. Here's the document. So it was being reinforced, even if it wasn't in the forefront of people's conscious attention, it was looming and lurking in the background. Wow. Yeah, and like you said, it was really being the reminder and the 
educational component that just kind of was part of daily practice with the antimicrobial stewardship team that um, people had adapted it almost adopted it without without even realizing it in a sense we're we're seeing now progress notes that say oh well we're coming up on day seven and the expected practice is to stop for this disease i mean it it has permeated and people may not you know we're all stressed out we all have 57 billion things to do it may not pop into the forefront of your mind in the moment but i think it has reached a sort of a collective consciousness and this is what other expected uh, there's I'm not, I don't want to go out and say this one expected practice worked and everything else didn't. Uh, we have expected practices across a variety of care elements, not even specific to infectious diseases. People have become accustomed to them. Yeah. I think what's striking, too, at the results was that the you, you mentioned this, the range, but for ventilator-associated pneumonia, I mean, the pneumonia is where you had some of the greatest impact, and the ventilator-associated pneumonia specifically Days of therapy decreased 27%, and the total decrease in antibiotic exposure was up to 35% in, the, in, these, in that cohort. Um, that's very significant, and that's it, with no shifted mortality, um, with a, quite a severe, potentially severe infectious diseases. It's yeah, I, I, and con, you know the the context also needs to be remembered. <clears throat> I didn't have to buy any technology. I didn't have to spend any money. This was a basically zero-cost intervention. So people could say, well, it wasn't zero-cost. People spent time developing the tool and rolling it out. But they were doing that in the context of what they were already getting paid to do, right? We have committees that are standing that just make decisions on stuff. We have a stewardship team that's making rounds. They didn't have to do anything other than what they were normally expected to do to create this and roll it out. For a zero-cost intervention that required no additional staff and no technology to knock VAP antibiotic usage down by 35% is pretty amazing. Yeah, very amazing. I mean, a follow-on to that, if if it doesn't require a lot of additional cost um, from your experience, is this something that you think other organizations and institutions could adapt to? Absolutely. In fact, yes. In fact, I... You know, I give talks at various hospitals uh, on short course therapy and on stewardship, and I've had several hospitals reach out to me after those talks and say, we won't, we want to do this, give us the template. And so I've sent it over, and, and they have done it, and they've been successful. This is not rocket science. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. Um, now, different systems are, have different complexity levels of the number of committees you got to go through. But generally what you need is, broad-based buy-in amongst providers, and then working through the official mechanisms to get practice standards set, P&T committees, MEC committees. That exists everywhere. You just have to use the system. And we've already sort of written up an example of the content, which, of course, can be tweaked to anybody's desire. This is not a hard thing to do. Yeah, I think – I think some of the – I've heard some um, individuals comment specifically about how they can influence the upper administration or management to support their stewardship practices. So it seems as well that this is something that, when done correctly with supportive literature, you can influence them to, Absolutely. to support you. Um, yes. 
you know, in contrast to some other expected practices, this expected practice is about doing less. There's, you know, the recent article people had a lot of buzz about, let's do less stupid things. This is about doing less. This is going to save your hospital CEO money. They will very likely be quite interested in helping to reduce pharmacy expenditures. What, what, where are you focusing next? On this, do you have other do you have other um, areas yeah. that you we, that you're you're going after now with this? Success? Yeah, we we already uh, almost simul. I guess maybe it was a little after we had no. Sorry, it was before we had done an expected practice around general stewardship principles, not the length of therapy, but it was like um, community infections don't require pseudomonal therapy. If you have negative blood cultures at 24 hours, stop the vanco. It was like, the you know, fungus in the urine doesn't get antifungals. It was the basics of stewardship. We have an expected practice around that. The stewardship team has found that very useful. We're seeing progress notes say that. Oh, the expected practice is we don't use zosin for cellulitis. It was like, duh. But but now it's starting to permeate. Um, the one we just have uh, gone live with locally within the last week is one around uh, how to treat aspiration. We got sick of 14 antibiotics going in for a macro aspiration event. Mm-hmm. And so we put one out there that, you know, even critical care bought into. We got the ICU team. They wanted it tweaked. We tweaked it. We made, got everybody happy with it. And it's like, if you have a witness aspiration, you don't need to be given antibiotics in that first 48 hours. If the patient's in shock, you're cool, right? We'll cut those people are excluded. That's what the ICU wanted. But give it 48 hours, and then at that point, if they're still having fevers or hypoxia, you do a workup, and if your pro-cal is high and or you have evidence of active infection at that point, then you can treat. That's actually been fairly smooth sailing. You know, the, the, the hard part about the expected practice is getting the buy-in up front from all relevant stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Once you've done that, it's fairly smooth sailing. That's excellent. Thanks for sharing those those new opportunities that you're you know you're focusing on because I think that helps other people think about how they might approach some of their stewardship practices. Um, yeah. Any any final comments to us today? The only last thing I'll mention is there was we did describe the only other intervention that went live um, it, during the study period was procalcitonin. We did go live with one hour turnaround procalcitonin. And that was of some concern by the reviewers for confounding. Now, it turned out it did not confound because patients that had a procalcitonin test sent had longer antibiotic courses. So, if anything, it confounded it against the short-course therapy. And there have been some comments made, oh, see, procalcitonin doesn't work. And the point I want to make is, as we say in the paper, you cannot conclude that. Patients were not randomized to have procalcitonin, and they were not stratified by procalcitonin. You would imagine that patients who are more complex are more likely to have a procalcitonin scent. Someone who defervesces rapidly and is very simple isn't going to have a procalcitonin scent. So this is confounding by indication. In a non-randomized setting, you can't say that this demonstrated procalcitonin doesn't work. I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up because it is. it was one of the um... – I don't know if it was unexpected in the study, but it's definitely something that is highlighted in the in the manuscript and needs to be um, discussed further, so as yeah. not to be misinterpreted. Well, with that, I'll, I'll 
going to close our podcast today. And thank you, Dr. Spellberg, for your time um, and really leading with these new approaches. Less can be more uh, for optimizing antibiotic prescribing and, and helping to lead the way with, you know, giving examples for antimicrobial stewardships and, and potentially uh, new approaches and the evidence they need to continue to advance their practices. Absolutely. Thanks so much for all the work you guys do. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay.